Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the show designed to discover what you should listen to next. Each week we hunt out the best in audio storytelling from New Zealand and around the world. And on the menu today, uncovering unanswered questions about the killing of Robert F. Kennedy. A man who records and charts his every single sneeze. True life stories about death, bereavement and loss only told by comedians and the ins and outs of ice cream vans and how skyscrapers work. Or to put it another way... How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? I started counting my sneezes on the 12th of July, 2007, and I'm still doing it. Write it down, Sarah Practice for what? Mind control. Sarah has written mind control... You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. Sometimes someone will come and buy a pity cone to help you out or because you look lonely. This is the worst thing that can happen. Hello and welcome to the Boring Talks. That's all coming up and I'd love to get some listening recommendations off you too. So next time you hear something great, let me know. You can do this by email at pods at radionz.co.nz. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Or you can record and send in voice messages using RNZ's Vox Pop app. And we'll be featuring your recommendations in future shows. In 1968, the American senator and politician Robert F. Kennedy was shot and killed at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. It was just four and a half years after the assassination of his older brother John in Dallas. A lone gunman called Sirhan Sirhan was captured at the scene with a revolver in his hand and convicted and sentenced to death, later reduced to life imprisonment. But the RFK tapes explore whether the case against Sirhan Sirhan was as straightforward as it sounds, and it uses lots of lovely old tapes, newsreel and other audio to do it. The first thing I said when Senator Kennedy was killed was that we are not going to have another Dallas here. Now, this was obviously an open and shut case right from the beginning. For law enforcement, the case was a triumph. They had successfully closed a major political assassination without any lingering questions or public doubts. We are satisfied that Sirhan Bashar Sirhan is the murderer of Senator Robert Kennedy and only he alone is the murderer. Photographs, physical evidence, and all the tapes the police recorded, it was all locked away. We've interviewed 4,000 people and we've done it because someday somebody, for purposes best known to themselves, is going to try to prove that Sirhan didn't do it, that this was a conspiracy, that this is some big mysterious plan that, in spite of all the investigation, we haven't been able to uncover. We knew it would happen. And it did happen. It absolutely did. 
That person that the district attorney predicted might come along one day to try to poke holes in his perfect open and shut case? He showed up. One afternoon, in the tape deck of my parents' car. Good evening. I'm Bill Kleber, and tonight we are going to take another look at the assassination of Robert Kennedy. It was the 90s. I was 10 years old. My dad was the editor of the local paper in our small town in upstate New York, and a family friend named Bill Kleber had given my dad a tape of a radio show he'd made. Thought it might make for a good print feature. My dad put it on in the car. Was Sirhan Sirhan, as we were told, really a fanatical Arab nationalist? Or was he, as some think, a robot assassin? Did Sirhan even murder Robert Kennedy? Or did someone else? Did the Los Angeles police conduct an honest investigation, or was there a massive cover-up? My dad ended up passing on the story. He thought it was kind of out there. But I was taken with this tape. I didn't know who Robert Kennedy was. I didn't really know what a conspiracy theory was either. But this idea that it was possible to uncover hidden stories and unanswered questions just beneath the surface of history, that was big and scary and kind of exciting. Historians a century from now will not have to examine these events through the filter of political expedience. They will see a conspiratorial mosaic, incomplete but unmistakable. For WJFF in Jeffersonville, New York, this is Bill Claver reporting. A couple years ago, as the 50th anniversary of RFK's assassination approached, I thought about Bill again. I wanted to find out what would make him see such a seemingly simple case in such a different and complex way. So, I tracked him down, went to go see him. That's coming up after the break. Check, check, check. I've come back to my hometown in upstate New York, and I'm sitting in Bill Kleber's house. Went to a concert last night. Where was the concert? It was at a, a bar. I'm here to talk to Bill about a radio documentary he made in the 90s about the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Considering the temperatures outside, a lot of people showed up, so it was good. Bill's in his early 70s. He plays softball and volleyball, and he looks like, well, if this was a movie, he'd probably be played by Sam Waterston. You know that guy from Law & Order? We sit down to talk in his home office, surrounded by books, files, and of course, tapes. All the tapes you've been hearing throughout this episode, they all came from Bill. Where are we right now? Just so I can get some levels. Where are we? Yeah. Where are we? Physically. Physically. We're in acidalia. Sounds like it's flower, right? But yeah. it's, it's, you know, like a sweet little thing. No, it's named after the acid factories that were here in, you know, like around the time of the Civil War. And they were taking, stripping the bark off the hemlock trees to make the acid that they could tan the leather, that they could make saddles and boots for guys to go to the war and kill each other. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, well, I don't know how cool it is, but, you know, we think the water is safe to drink. You said it's a big thought when you start to believe a conspiracy and when you start to think that maybe the, the version of the story that you've been told isn't true. Yeah. Can you say more about that? And just... Well, I think um, I, did, I went to my 50th college reunion this year. And a couple of times I had the opportunity to, to speak about the RFK case and could just watch people just glass over. And these are smart guys. 
These are really smart guys. And yet somehow the thought is too big that the government would actually, or elements of the government, would actually conspire to murder Robert Kennedy is a thought beyond what their head can handle. I know how that feels because I was the same way. And, and I'd look at people saying, oh, grassy knoll, grassy knoll. And I'd say, oh, God, get, just get over it, you know? They talk about conspiracy theorists. Well, I'm not. I'm a researcher. I, I'm, I look at evidence, but they, would, they term everybody conspiracy theorists as though you sort of sit around and invent conspiracies in the air. And that's not how it goes. You look at the evidence. Sitting here in Bill's home, I can see that he's spent a staggering amount of time looking at evidence from the RFK case. That radio show that I heard as a kid, it was just the beginning for Bill. Since then, he's collected more tapes, he's tracked down and interviewed more people who were involved. He wrote a whole book about the assassination called Shadow Play. New edition's out now. So if for you, the term conspiracy theorist conjures up images of someone casually retweeting poorly researched articles from the darkest corners of the internet, I get that. But that's not Bill. What do you think happened? What's your theory of the case? I, I th it's a tough one. Everybody believes Sirhan when he offers a motive. Supposedly, Sirhan is protecting his people from the jets that Kennedy is going to send to Israel. That's the motive. But Sirhan doesn't remember the crime. And almost everybody's reaction to that is, well, he's just saying that because he wants to get out of it. And that's the natural reaction. Um, all by itself, okay, you went and shot the guy you don't remember. I'm sorry. But it's not all by itself. And that's when Bill takes a hard left onto Conspiracy Street. Kennedy is shot four times at close range in the back at a steep upward angle. Sirhan is never really in a good position to do that. First, Bill says, the positioning is all it wrong. It turns out that there are more bullets fired in the pantry than Sirhan has in his gun. And he says, there were too many bullets. To a virtual certainty. So if two guns are firing now in the pantry, there's substantial evidence that none of the bullets from Sirhan's gun ever struck Robert Kennedy. There must have been someone else involved. Quite a few people see a woman in a polka dot dress with Sirhan. Saying, we shot him, we shot him, and she runs down the stairs. A girl in a polka dot dress? They went around and appeared to erase all traces of co-conspirators. I mean, they did. it wasn't an investigation at all. It was all working. We interviewed thousands of people. They covered up the tracks of the people who were did the murder. That's bullshit, excuse me. You can see how they cook the books, which is not what they're supposed to be doing. So larger forces must have been at work. There are people who say, well, you know, the mob had it in for Bobby Kennedy. The mob would probably put him up to it. I don't know of any cases where the mob hypno-programmed their assassins. They, don't, they didn't really do business that way. So if the mob didn't hypno-program Sirhan Sirhan, then who? There were several doctors in California at that time who were working with intelligence agencies on hypnoprogramming uh, projects to try to uh, figure out how to create a robot assassin. This is certainly a case where that really might have happened. This is a lot of fun. Okay. Um, I'm having fun too. Good. So, yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah, big thought. Yeah, most people can't wrap their head around it. I, 
Yeah, because in order, in order to, to score any points, you have to get someone to sit down and actually look at it. It's hard to do. Um, and I wonder if maybe we might go back and explore this thing together. Hypno-programming? Robot assassins? I was kind of feeling like one of Bill's incredulous former classmates at his 50th college reunion. But then, he played me this tape. A tape made in 1969 by psychiatrists who hypnotized Sirhan. I'm going to count to five, and at the end of five, you're going to be sound asleep. Now, one, two, three, four, five. Maybe hypnotizing Sirhan would unlock his memory of the murder. You're at the Ambassador Hotel. Now, remember, this is Tuesday night. You're at the Kennedy reception, Sirhan. They give Sirhan a notebook and a pencil and start asking him questions. I want you to write about Kennedy. Open your eyes and write about Kennedy. Suddenly, Sirhan's hand comes to life and he begins scrawling RFK, RFK, RFK over and over again. Tell us more than his name, Sirhan. Write more than the name. What's going to happen to Kennedy? What's going to happen to Kennedy, Sirhan? RFK must die. RFK must die. RFK must die. RFK must die. He said, RFK must die, but when must he die? When is Robert Kennedy going to die? He writes, Robert Kennedy is going to die. Robert is going to die. Robert is going to die. Sirhan, Sirhan, Robert is going to die. Sirhan, who killed Kennedy? Who killed Kennedy? He writes, who killed Kennedy? You're writing the question, write the answer, Sirhan. Go to another line. Is this crazy, Sirhan? Is this crazy writing? Yes, 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 uh, yes, yes. yes. Stop writing the yeses. You're like the sorcerer's apprentice here. Yes, yes, Sirhan, yes, yes. Are you crazy, Sirhan? Are you crazy? He writes, no, 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 that's no, enough, no. Right? You wrote no, that's enough. Sirhan, if you are not crazy, why are you writing crazy? Practice. Practice for what, Sirhan? Practice for what? Write it down, Sirhan. Practice for what? Mind control. Sirhan has written mind control. Some of episode one of the RFK tapes from Crime Town presents thanks to Zach Stewart-Pontier and Austin Mitchell for letting us share that with you. You can find it, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Just search for RFK tapes. Or you can go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour and there's a link to the programme page there now. Slow TV, those relaxing images of ferry rides and burning logs and people knitting, could be facing some serious competition. The Boring Talks, a BBC series celebrating the seemingly mundane and the trivial. 
Blockbusting topics like a history of yellow lines, book pricing algorithms and the international regulation of wooden pallets are just some of the scintillating subjects on offer. Sneeze 368. 8.48pm, 31st of January, 2008. Indigo Bookstore, Eaton Centre, Toronto. Moderate. Scouring the trade paperbacks. I started counting my sneezes on the 12th of July, 2007, and I'm still doing it. At the time of recording this, I counted 5,082 sneezes. But this talk is going to focus on the first 1,000 sneezes. So why did sneezeologist Pete Fletcher take self-tracking to the next level? I can't remember now how it first came to me to start counting sneezes. But I think I must have been one of those idle daydreams in which I wondered how many times I might sneeze in a day or a year or in my life. And from there, taking the logical next step of thinking how idiotic it would be to start actually counting them. What a massive, pointless waste of time and effort. And the more I thought about it, the more the idea of doing something that was a completely pointless waste of time appealed to me. So what started out as a little conceptual art joke, a playful satire of the blogosphere and a mock scream against the futility and emptiness of modern life, turned into something more ridiculous and intriguing. Sneeze number 314, 9.51am, Saturday 29th of December 2007. Bedroom, moderate. Drinking tea and staring at a photograph of me as a boy, dressed in lederhosen, making a golf shot in my grandparents' garden. Bless you. And in another in the series, everything you ever wanted to know about ice cream vans but were too afraid to ask. You soon learn that every situation is an ice cream selling opportunity. I worked with a guy who came upon a small car crash when he was on his rounds and the police had cordoned off the road. He promptly pulled up and started selling to the ambulance crew, police and bystanders. You also learn which factories and offices will chase you away and which will welcome you in. It used to be a safe bet to pull up outside a school at the end of the day or drive around industrial estates at lunchtime. You learn about ice cream chimes. The chimes came in a small metal box about 10 centimetres square and are made by a company called Harvin. They were operated by winding them up like a pull-back-and-go car. It was quite easy to overwind them and snap the winder, so you would take a spare winder at all times. Modern chimes are now electrically driven. The most popular chime is O Solo Mio and they play through a speaker under the front wheel arch. It's also important to know how long you can play your chimes for. When I was in the business, you were only allowed to sound your chimes in four second bursts. But in 2012, the government increased that time to 12 seconds. Fan drivers are also not allowed to sound the chimes more than once every two minutes, more than once when the vehicle is stationary at a selling point, when within 50 metres of schools, hospitals and places of worship, or when in sight of another vehicle which is trading. That last point might be to curb ice cream related violence. If you get the old school drivers onto the subject, they'll tell stories about how rough the business can be. 
One guy told me that when they saw another ice cream van driving past, they used to lean out of the window and try and punch them. Brutal. I also learnt how to amuse myself when it's raining. I read the whole of Catch-22 in a couple of days when stationed outside Farnborough Asda over a very rainy Easter. The worst thing about this is that sometimes someone will come and buy a pity cone to help you out or because you look lonely. This is the worst thing that can happen. Once the whippy machine has been inactive for a while, the ice cream needs to refreeze, which can take 10 minutes. So you're standing there in the dry or someone waits in the rain for a cone they are very rapidly going off the idea of wanting. Awkward. Ali Coote on ice cream vans, and I just love the idea of a pity cone. And thanks to the Boring Talks creator James Ward and also Luke Doran, who produces the show for the BBC for their help. Bereavement and grief are major life events that happen to us all eventually. But there aren't many how-to guides to help you navigate your way through the death of a loved one. And it isn't always an easy subject to talk about. Inspired by her own experiences, the English actor and comedian Carrie Ad Lloyd started collecting life stories about grief and loss. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. Welcome to Series 2 of Griefcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry there was such a gap between Series 1 and Series 2, but um, I have a baby and then very recently also a dog has appeared in our life. Um, not just appeared, we you know we know why she's there. But yeah, things have been quite hectic. Um, we have some amazing guests coming up for this series, so please do subscribe to the podcast, uh, rate us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at The Griefcast or Instagram, The Griefcast. Tell your friends. It really does help to spread the word for the podcast and the more people who listen to it means I can carry on making them. So if you do enjoy them, please do do all those things. It really does help. This week's guest is the amazing Susan Wakoma. She's an actress and comedian. She's been in Crashing, at Crazy Head on Netflix. She's also a regular co-host of the brilliant podcast, The Guilty Feminist. If you haven't listened to that, I definitely recommend it. And uh, She's currently starring in Labour of Love in the West End with Tamsin Grieg and Martin Freeman. And she very kindly came in to talk to us about her dad, Charles. Welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with... Ac- now, I pause... <laughs> do you prefer actress or actor or do you not oh, care I don't care actress they say actress actress okay. I quite like actress I, like like I worked actress. really hard to become an actress and everyone's like no and I'm like <laughs> actually now I have that <laughs> oh, actually, I want that. welcome to Griefcast I'm here with actress Susan Wakoma. hello hi yeah you alright um, 
I am exhausted. <laughs> my baby don't sleep. Girl don't, don't sleep. sleep. No sleep. <laughs> She's so good in the day. Mm. Just nighttime screaming. So who are we remembering today, Susan? We are remembering my dad. Your dad. What's your dad's name? Charles. Charles. I always say it wrong, which is bad because... <laughs> He was my dad. <laughs> Charles. It's because, so we all, like, so my parents are Nigerian, and you're normally given sort of a very English name. Right. Mine's Susan, which is just the shittest name ever. It's, it's just It's very it's rubbish, English, man. isn't it? It's yeah. so awful. Susan. Um, so his is Charles, but we don't, obviously I'll call him dad, but his Nigerian name was Ombo. So all his mates oh. and like my mum would call him Ombo. So, but Charles is his first name. So, so you have every two, time I say it's two name options. Yeah. So my Nigerian name is Indiaba, oh, which means lovely. from India, which I'm not. So Ombo is Umbo. his name. Yeah, yeah. Or Charlie, um, some of them called him. And when did your dad die? He passed away in 2012. Okay, so you've just had five, your five-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. That's quite a chunk, isn't it, the whole five-year? Yeah. yeah. It's sort of flown by. Like yeah. I, I sort of... It, it's weird every time it, it comes to the day. I've normally been... The thing is, I've always been working. And uh, this was the first year where that I knew that day was definitely just going to be me in my head wow so I didn't really know how I'd feel in five years is it is a chunk so I try not to go towards it with any expectation but it's a weird time because actually my old sister Emmy her birthday is the day after oh man so it's always it's it's kind of like you can't allow yourself to fall too down a hole if there is a hole some days I've been like this yeah. was nice to remember him but um, because you know you saw, you've got to sort of be there for her for the birthday yeah that must be yeah. hard for her really straight like, I can't I can't get my head around that because then every time you're like oh it's my birthday great but I've, I've got to do with that first yeah I've got to yeah. do with that day first yeah, yeah I think because we have a lot of people on who are sort of in the two three year mark yeah which I think is like I guess a bit like kids. If you're two, three, they're still you're still sort of in that baby phase. But I yeah. think five years is like, I guess. Why do I say it's a chunk? It is that like it's like half a decade, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, yeah. Okay, this is very your life is very established without them. At yeah. five years. Yeah. I think. Yeah, you you figured out, and also because it, it happened when I was twenty four, and now I'm twenty nine. Like there is just so much. Yeah. So much that's happened, like personally and professionally, that you do you. I've got my life sort of set now that he has no, like, yeah, <laughs> has no, got nothing to do no with No reference him. for, yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, it is, it is a chunk, yeah, like reference. What did he die of? He had a stroke. He had uh, high blood pressure, which is very common mm. amongst Afro-Caribbean people, mm. Asian people. And so he just didn't manage it very well. He worked a lot I think by the end, he was working two jobs. Wow. <laughs> like a nutter. He'd work at the home office Monday to Friday. And then uh, Friday night when you finish at six, he'd come back home, have a shower, have some food, then go to the Royal Festival Hall where he worked as a security guard overnight. Whoa. He'd do that until about four o'clock Saturday, so overnight. And then he'd come back and sleep on Sunday, back on Monday. <gasps> so he had his stroke, actually, when uh, he finished in between... Uh, the two jobs on that Friday. Oh That's my when it happened. God. Yeah. That, I mean, I have baby Nutter. and I don't like that schedule. Like, I feel like <laughs> I'm tired and that's made me go, oh, oh no. No, no, no. Was he, no. so was he a workaholic, do you think? Or was it, where was that coming from? Or just, totally. just liked working? I think it was, I know, it was, he 
came from Nigeria with my mum, your identity is work. Right. Like my parents wanted everyone to, if they were to ever describe them as something, it was hard workers. Mm. You wanted to pay his way. Really didn't believe in like benefits or anything like that. He was like, you know, I'm an immigrant and I've come here to work. I've come here to work and to contribute, which, you know, I don't, you know, I believe that a welfare system is really, really important and integral. Yeah. But I think it was, you know, wanting people to sort of know that he wasn't here to scrounge yeah. because of that and also us being definitely poor (laughs) then his identity becomes that and then we all start flying the nest and whatever and and he doesn't know anything else like retirement we had to beg my mum to eventually retire beg her because it just doesn't exist in his mind and that's what it is it's just it's what he did you just work like two jobs was is nothing and how has that affected you and do you feel like you try and keep work very separate in a way or you make sure Mm. you don't feel bad when you're having downtime I think what it did was it made me step back and really think about whether I enjoy what I do Mm. and I was like yeah I do yeah thank god because if I at that time if I turned around and said oh no I don't I would have quit yeah because I just thought there's no point going through what actors do performers do comedians do if you hate it and the thing that I, I mean, we never ever spoke about it, but I'm pretty sure that he was not doing what he wanted to do mm. because he had to put food on the table for us. And so I was like, right, you know, work is hard. So therefore, do I love what I do? Yes. And so I approached work with lots more, it's so wanky, love and joy. I do feel like it was the beginning of establishing what my um, boundaries were when wow. it came to work because it scared the shit out of me Yeah, um, to see him such a busybody. My entire life he was a busy, busy little <laughs> body yeah. of a man to not being able to speak. It was terrifying and I thought, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. yeah. I did an interview with someone about my experience of grief and they were saying oh you know when your dad was ill was it you know like they become so you know so so small and like not Mm. you know not this father anymore I was like no I just never seen him still yeah and that's what really got me was like he was still and wasn't like you said running doing this going here we're going this with this and that's more it was like oh he's not he's just in one room yeah that's unusual yeah he had his stroke and then yeah so he had his stroke on the Friday after work Friday after work and it was God, there's so many different... It's such a... It's really, really mapped out. And it kind of feels like I'm spinning a yarn. But as I was in it, I was like, this feels structured and I think I know what's going to happen. Wow. So when he... A couple of... About a month before he had the stroke, I found out that I got a job of my first film. And it was set in Nigeria, which is where my parents were from. I'd never been to Nigeria because my parents were convinced that I'm so stupid that um, I'll go to Nigeria and, like, get myself killed. Like, somebody will <laughs> arrive in the van and be like, get in this van, and I'll be like, sure. So, <laughs> Are they like, you didn't grow up where we grew up? You're not yeah. street smart. <laughs> exactly. You don't get it. And I remember when I was in, like, my second year at RAD, I was like, I've saved up money, I'm going to go to Nigeria and, like, find out who I am. Mm-hmm. And my mum begged me, she went, please don't go. You've got a very round face and a round face equals naivety and stupidity and you're not going to make it. The idea that you come off the plane and be like, whoa, whoa. that is a round face. Get her in Boys, the van. get your van. Bring the van round. We've got a round face. That's amazing. Susan Wacoma on Griefcast and the host and creator of the show, Cariad Lloyd, told me a little bit more about how she got the idea to start the podcast up. 
my dad died when I was 15. And so I've spent a long time having in-depth conversations with people about grief and death because um, we talk on the show about being part of a club. And, you know, I feel like I just I joined the death club quite early. So it's something I've got used to and I'm comfortable with. And then um, in 2016, I literally was just thinking, you know, like lots of my friends had started podcasts and I just thought, wow, you know, every time I go to a party or a gig, I end up having this intense conversation about grief and death and mortality. And no one hears those conversations. And I just thought, oh, I wonder if anyone would like to hear them. Maybe that'd be interesting. That was it. And then um, I was very pregnant and um, I had recorded four of these conversations and my daughter was uh, two weeks late. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, I could sit here and do nothing or I could just get these podcasts out there why don't I do that I'll just get them out and see what happens and um I really didn't think anyone would listen to be honest I thought I'll just do them no one really listen and then you know when she's a bit bigger I can come back and have a think about this idea but I put these first four episodes out there and it went pretty crazy from day one to be honest people just started instantly emailing me and wanting to know whether there was more coming and this instant reaction of like oh this is how I feel when no one talks about it and I suppose because I've been having that conversation for so long, I figured everyone was. And I didn't really realise some people weren't talking about it and wanted to. So that's where it began. And the the decision to go with a podcast, are you really tech savvy? Was that something you felt really comfortable <laughs> doing? Or was did you have to get a no. bit of help and assistance? Oh, my goodness. Not <laughs> at all. I am very much creative. I really struggle with anything technical, but um, there's an amazing there's an amazing podcaster called Helen Zaltzman, who does the Allusionist podcast, and yeah, she set up a Facebook group called the Podcast Support Group. So lots of my friends were doing podcasts, and they said, "Oh, just join this group, and then if you've got a question, you can just ask them." So I did. I just asked questions and then people would, you know, really tech people would be like, oh, you need audacity, you need this. And I taught myself how to edit. And it involved a lot of swearing and a lot of YouTubing tutorial videos and not understanding them. And so at the beginning, I did everything myself. And it was a very slow process. And so I couldn't really get them out weekly. I just had a baby. It was like, it was quite hard. And then I think about halfway through, um, my editor, Kate Holland, came on board. So I'd worked on another show with her. And when I told her, I said to her, it takes me six hours to do an episode. And she laughed and said, I could do that in two. <laughs> right. I thought, I was like, no, you couldn't. And she did. So I thought, oh, okay. So yeah, now she helps me with the editing and I do everything else. But I wouldn't be able to do it weekly if it wasn't for Kate. I was going to ask you about editing because I think one of the charms of the of the show is that the conversation seems like a conversation, like it's really organic. You're not zeroing in on, on one topic yeah. and editing everything extraneous out from around it. Welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with actor, writer, comedian, Robert Webb. Hello. Hi, Hi Rob. Hi. We're starting again because something went wrong. I know. So I feel like my prepared question. <laughs> I didn't have a prepared question. We were just talking about voiceovers. I've already had one of my famous tantrums. So yeah, I know. It was a bit they're much. Just, they're just putting the, all the furniture back together now. <laughs> What's ever pushed you to a tantrum? Yeah, uh, like... I don't... Ooh, or do you not do tantrums? Do you do I sort really, of internal? I honestly don't think I've done a proper one. I uh, know it, I, I, I do sulk. I am capable oh, of going into sulker. a mope. Right. Yeah. Is it so. very? I think so because I don't do. I'm more of a loud. Yeah. I think that's probably, that's probably healthier. But sulking people, I feel like they think they're not saying anything, but it's so loud. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And so they, they loud. think, well, this is much better than throwing furniture out. Yeah, uh, and, and in a way, it is. It kind but, of is, but it's it unbelievably again, yeah, loud. How yeah, quiet a sulk is. I have is. to really keep an eye on my own nerve. 
my own sulks because they yes they can be quite they can be quite powerful. Do you do a lot of editing afterwards, or is it left as is? There's not a lot. I mean, when I was editing, I used to do more because. I would edit myself out because I would think, oh, I'm boring. And then when Kate came on board, she was like, I think your story that you said was interesting as well. Let's keep that in. So that definitely changed because I think I was a lot more controlling and worried about what, you know, what was interesting. So it definitely helped having an outside view. We don't really edit an awful lot. I mean, to be honest, the main thing we take out is often if sometimes people after the interview, they'll say, oh, I've just realised I can't really say that about my aunt, brother, cousin, mum, dad, you know. So we kind of, that's the only things we tend to nip out if someone's mentioned something that's still contentious within the family um, yeah. or names sometimes. But, yeah, we try not to, you know, these are the conversations I've been having for years. So I wanted to keep that, yeah, that organic sense of it doesn't have to always be okay, what happened and where were you when they died? Like some people, that's not interesting to them. What's interesting to them is how they coped or some people what's interesting to them is the person that they lost. So I try and zero in on what they want to talk about, really. And how do people respond? Like what's the what's the feedback? Like what are people saying? Is it is it that sense that, God, I'm so pleased that you're talking about this because I've felt like this for such a long time? Or Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really varies from... You know, people who's, you know, emails that stick out to me of a woman who had fallen out with her mother because the stepfather had died. And, and the woman said, I never really understood what she was going through. And then I listened to your show and we've got back in contact because I realized perhaps she was grieving. And that's why we fell out over lots of things to people saying, you know, I lost parents when they were babies and they they've never told their wife what happened and now they've listened to the show and they've realized perhaps they should talk to someone or people saying you know who talk about it already but are just so relieved to hear other people talking about it It, the main sense I get is a relief a relief that there's a space to talk about this and a relief that it's done you know, it, it's not done to solve anything or fix anything. It's just a space to talk about death with, without any judgment or worrying you're going to upset people. So, you know, the stories always vary, but there's a definite sense of community that is needed. And, and does talking to all these people about grief and loss and death, do you think that's given you a different perspective on on your own experience? Yeah, it yeah, 100% has. I never set out for that to happen, ever. But um, it's one of the consequences that I have now spent weeks and weeks talking about my dad and my experience of grief and perhaps realising that I thought I was talking about it, but perhaps I wasn't talking about it, you know, in quite the way I do on, on the show, because I also had those feelings of not wanting to be boring and not wanting to upset people. And it's also made me extremely present to death and the more you talk about it the more you realize everybody's experienced it in some way there's very few people that haven't been touched by it or know someone that's been touched by it and it starts to feel less isolating and less weird I think I always felt like oh I'm such a strange person my dad died when I was young how unusual you meet all these people and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not unusual at all. I'm completely normal. This is just one of those things that happens. And I think that's really important to normalise it. I suppose when I think of my own experiences and, you know, you hear someone's lost someone that's dear to them, you don't quite know what to say or what to do and you, you want to do mm. the right thing, but there's that kind of sense, oh, God. And maybe in, in some cases it's just easier not to try 
And, and yeah, I think we suffer from wanting to fix as a society. If anything's broken, you know, from, you know, in this country, from the NHS to, you know, social mobility to the trains, people want to fix it. Like, how can we fix it? What can the government do? What can people do? How can you get involved? And death is something you can't fix. And I think that's really hard for humans to hear and bear. And I think we could all do with stopping trying to fix people's pain and just just listen. Like if you don't know what to say to someone, of course you don't. What can you say when someone's died? There isn't there isn't anything to say. There aren't the, the correct words. But you can be there, you can listen, you can tidy up their house, you can bring them some food, you can help them sort out a room full of a dead person's stuff. Like there's very practical things you can do, but you cannot fix their sadness. And everyone approaches it from this attitude of, well, how can I make them happy? And if you just approached it with like, well, how can I let them bear this pain? It would be a lot easier, I think. But you shouldn't feel worried about, I don't know what to say, I think is important. Like there isn't a correct thing to say. So don't worry. (laughs) There literally isn't anything that you could say that's going to make it better. The worst thing has happened. So don't worry about it. The creator and host of Griefcast, Cariad Lloyd. And the show's just won Podcast of the Year and a few other gongs at the British Podcast Awards. Take two engaging hosts, one interesting topic, add some reading and a bit of background research, and then record a conversation where they explain the subject's complexities to each other and share all the most interesting bits. That's the basic recipe of the Stuff You Should Know podcast. And with more than a thousand episodes recorded over the past decade and millions of downloads every month, you could say it's working. Recent episodes have covered anarchism, sea monkeys, condoms, Ponzi schemes and narwhals, so there should be something for everyone. And this one tries to answer the question, how do skyscrapers work? And hosts Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant make the answer sound surprisingly easy. Uh, All right, so let's talk about my favourite part of this whole thing, which is the skeleton and the superstructure. Mm -hmm. It's just so beautifully simplistic again. Uh, The steel skeleton is the support structure of a skyscraper, and these are literally just vertical columns made up of metal beams that Mm -hmm. are riveted together end to end. Right. In a big, giant box. And then at every floor, first floor, second floor, third floor. Oh, keep going. (laughs) You're going to have, obviously, horizontal girders, and those are just, I was going to say strapped. That wouldn't be very safe. They're, those are just riveted. <laughs> a good ratchet strap will do it. <laughs> right. Strapped with like a, a, a bit of leather. That's it. That's what holds them together. Those are riveted to the columns. And that's it on top. Right. So, yeah, you've got you've got vertical columns going up. You have girders going horizontally. And then you'll have like diagonal sure. supports that stabilize the girders, right? Yeah, and those make- came along a little later. Right. But all of these things put together, it forms like like what it's called, the skeleton, the structure of the building. And it holds up everything because everything is connected to those vertical columns. Right. Which is pretty great, but it creates an issue in that all the weight is getting transferred straight down through those mm-hmm. vertical columns. Yeah. 
that's what it does. So, like, all of the horizontal weight, like, from the floors, from, like, the desks you put in there, from the drywall, from everything, it all gets transferred to those vertical columns, which means that you better have some, number one, sturdy vertical columns. But you can't just build this thing on the sidewalk. No. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to mount them pretty well to the, to the earth. And the way you do that is there's a sub-layer of clay that you want to dig down to, depending on how heavy your building is. If it's really heavy, you want to dig down to the bedrock, which is the actual crust of the earth. The rest is, you know, just debris and detritus. Yeah, this this substructure, I think, is the kind of the coolest thing. I agree. So you remember we were talking about how um, if you build with brick and mortar, the taller you build, the thicker the walls have to be to where you have, like, basically no room left in the lower levels. Yeah. They figured out how to take that and put it underground and then build a, su- a superstructure on top of it. And that's what they did. Yeah. So each little vertical column, and to make it simple, let's just think of four corners of a building, um, though the the structure is much more complicated than that with huge buildings, obviously. But each one of those vertical columns sits on a spread footing, which is basically, and if you look at the picture on the website article or just Google it, it's really, again, beautifully simplistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sits on a big square cast iron plate, and then that sits on what's called grillage, which are just stacks of horizontal steel beams. And they're just lined up, and then it's almost like a Jenga tower. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll line them up going one way, and then the next layer will be lined up going the other way. And they've done a little math to figure out how many they need. Mm-hmm. And that grillage sits on concrete, uh, this big concrete pad that's <laughs> on that clay or the bedrock. And then all of that stuff is buried in concrete. Just for good measure. Just for good measure. And so then you... they coat that in butterscotch. <laughs> mm. I know that does sound kind of good, huh? So you've, like you said, you've just got this this pyramid essentially underground the supporting toughest, each column. The toughest pyramid anyone has ever made in the history of humanity is one of these, these um, spread footings. Tougher uh, than and, the one from Bring It On, the movie? Yes, tougher <laughs> than that one. This is a good movie, by the way. That's what I've heard. Um, but that's just under one vertical column. And again, if you have just a simple four column structure, you've got four of those taking the weight and distributing the force of gravity, pressing down on every square centimeter of this building. It's, it's going down to the spread footing and just being distributed back into the earth saying, there you go, fellas, go on your merry way and leave this building be. That's right. I will take your load and spread it thin. And before we take a break, we should mention that all of this means, this this uh, skeletal structure means that your outer walls, which are the curtain walls, um, they, they can be wide open. And so that's why you see floor-to-ceiling glass and a lot to most of these. Yeah. Because you don't need it to support anything. No, just itself. That's the only thing it has to support. So that was like a huge revolution in in construction, the idea that you could build with this new material, well, not new, but newly refined material, newly available material mm-hmm. that could support a huge, tall building and that you could just put an outside wall onto. Well, then now you can do whatever you want with these things. It really kind of opened things up. And there was a huge change in construction design in skyscrapers pretty quickly after they were introduced. Yeah. Stuff You Should Know, and that episode called Skyscrapers, Excuse Me While I Kiss the Sky, was hosted by Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant, and thanks to Jerry Rowland for letting us use that clip.
And that's about all from us. A reminder that you've been listening to the RFK tapes, the Boring Talks, Griefcast and Stuff You Should Know. And you'll find more details about all of these shows on our website now. That's rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Please let me know what you think. Do you want to hear fewer interviews, more podcasts, longer or shorter clips? And is three or four shows about the right number to feature each week? Let me know what you reckon. And do share your listening recommendations too by email to pods at radionz.co.nz. On Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Or you can record and send in voice messages to us using RNZ's VoxPop app. From me, Richard Scott, I'll be back with more recommendations in a week. In the meantime, enjoy your listening. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.